This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we begin with another visit with Sherlock Holmes and his able assistant, Dr. Watson. You know, in writing these intros to these wonderful old radio shows, I sometimes run out of material, or <laughs> think I have. So tonight, rather than go through a cast description again, I thought, hmm, I wonder if there exists a list of unusual things to know about Sherlock Holmes. And Gadfrey Daniels there is. For instance, did you know Holmes never says, Elementary, my dear Watson. The closest he gets is in the episode, The Crooked Man, when after Watson cries, Excellent, Sherlock dryly replies, Elementary. The Museum of London reveals much about a variety of performers' versions of Sherlock Holmes. Winning the most dedicated and definitely the craziest title is William Gillette, who, in a 1900 production actually injected himself with cocaine live on stage. Beat that one if you can. With two years, or within two years, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had grown so tired of Holmes that he decided the time had come to kill him off, complaining that it takes my mind from other things. In 1889, a publisher for the American magazine Lippincott's took Doyle and fellow Oscar Wilde to lunch offering them each 100 pounds for a work of 40,000 words or more. Doyle completed his Sherlock installment, The Sign of Four, while Wilde contributed his only novel, but certainly one that became very famous, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Now, armed with that information, we proceed to tonight's show, The Bar Baconian, I'll try that again, The Baconian Caper. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petrie family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I'm sure Dr. Watson's ready for us. Let's go in and join him, shall we? Come in, come in, come in. Come in. 
evening, Mr. Bartell. Evening, Doctor. Quiet, Willie. Quiet, Dogs seem very pleased with themselves tonight. Did they have a good day? Yes, the three of us did, my boy. Hey, go on. Run off out in the patio. I took a seven iron and some old golf balls on the beach this afternoon. I improved my game, I think, and the dogs had a great time chasing the golf balls. On the way home, the little rascals had a furious battle with an elderly pelican. <laughs> so their day was complete. I'll have to join you on one of your afternoon strolls, Doctor. You and the dogs seem to have so much fun. Oh, I'll be glad of your company, Mr. Bartell. Well, draw up your usual churn. I'll get on with tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure. From the hints you gave us last week, I guess a Frenchman played a prominent part in the story? Yes, indeed he did, Mr. Bartell. His name was Francois Lavia. He was a detective of some note in his own country. The time my story begins, it was in 1889, to be exact. Lavia had come over to London to discuss with Holmes the difficulties of translating some of his monographs into the French language. At this particular time, I was in the early days of my marriage, Mr. Bartell, and this fact, combined with a busy practice, meant that I saw very little of my old friend. He must have missed you, Doctor. Oh, uh, he did. <laughs> well, of course, he never admit the fact, but, uh, but uh, to get on with my story. One cloudless June afternoon, I found myself in the neighborhood of Baker Street, and I couldn't resist paying a visit to Holmes. Mrs. Hudson was out, but uh, having retained my old latch key, I let myself in and mounted the familiar stairs. It gave me a strange feeling as I raised my hand to knock on what once had been my own living room door. Come in, come in. Oh, hello, Holmes. Hello, Holmes. Oh, I, I beg your pardon. I didn't know you were... Watson, my dear fellow. How oh, very nice to see you again. <laughs> it's great to see you, Holmes. I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. I, no. I didn't know that you had company. Not at all, my dear fellow. We're delighted, aren't we, Le Villard? Watson, this is uh, Monsieur Le Villard. Well, how do you do, sir? How do you do? Enchanté, monsieur. I have often wished to meet the so charming Dr. Watson. Holmes has told me a great deal about you. Oh, that's very nice of you, sir. Ah, that <laughs> suits you, Watson. You look splendid, old fellow. Gained a little weight, haven't you? Oh, uh, yes, a few pounds, I mean. Come, sir, sit down, won't you? Uh, you sure that I'm not interrupting you in some important discussion? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 mon cher doctor. We were having a good-natured argument on the relative abilities of the French criminal compared to the English. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you must lend me your support, idea. Watson, monsieur... Le V.I. is convinced that the English criminal is a very dull dog indeed. Well, we've met some far from dull ones in our time, I, I assure you, Monsieur Le V.I. Ah, the exceptions <laughs> rather than the rule, I fear, mon cher doctor. <laughs> You're stubborn, aren't you, Le V.I.? <laughs> Believe me, my dear friend, that I will yield to no one in my admiration of your knowledge and skill. That is why I wish I could persuade you to practice in Paris. Ah, there you would find opponents really worthy of your skill. What can happen to interest you in this land of grey frogs, uh, boiled potatoes, and uh, pots of tea? Excuse me for myself, sir. You're not very flattering. Oh, I'm so insular, Watson. Oh, I meant no offense, my friend. Well, you say that the English criminal is dull. Well, perhaps if you were to read a published story of mine called A, a Study in Scarlet, you'd think differently. It tells of a very exciting adventure that Holmes and I had. I have read it, my friend. Oh, you have? An extremely gripping story, but surely you will admit that the crime was essentially of American origin. <laughs> He's right, Watson. He's perfectly right, dear me. What can I do to vindicate the dishonor of the London criminal? Let me see. Oh, yes, yes, of course. A copy of today's Times. That's fine. I shall introduce you to a section known as the Agony Column. Uh, where is it now? Oh, yes, here we are. 
This should convince you of the color and variety of English life. The agony column? Mm. It sounds most painful. Uh, what is it, boy? A personal column is liable to contain anything from a lover's frantic appeal to his lady love to a ransom note. In my profession, I have frequently found it an invaluable medium for contacting the underworld. Uh-huh. Yes, now, here we are. Here's something. Uh, dear me. Oh, dear, no. Today's column seems rather uninspired, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, may I examine it? Of course, here you are. Merci. Um, if the lady who helped my little boy across the road at the corner of Threadwell Street and High Auburn last Wednesday at four uh, will get in touch with Box 845, she will learn of something to her advantage. <laughs> we can be more colorful than that in Paris, my friend. Yes, I think we can do better than that, too. Yeah, look at this, will you? Oh, printer must have been half asleep when he <clears throat> set up the type for this advertisement. Will any gentleman interested in discussing... Cryptography and cipher writing. Please communicate with Box XQL 696. The time. Boy, I fail to find this message any more stirring than the preceding one. You notice the execrable printing, don't you? Indeed I do. It is all mixed up. The first word, will, starts with a capital W and a capital I. Uh, the second word, any, starts with a small A and then has a capital N and Y. It is a shocking example of typography. And when it occurs in a paper noted for its excellence in typesetting, one realizes that uh, this is no mistake. What do you mean, huh? This is undoubtedly a code message. Oh, 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 come now, my friend. I defy even you to make a mystery out of the printer's negligence. I accept the challenge, my dear Leviard. If you recall, the Baconian bilateral cipher depends upon the use of two sizes of type. If we group the letters in units of five, the arrangements of small and capital letters within the group should give us the message. Now, let's see. Two capitals followed by three small gives us the letter H. Then two capitals, one small, two more. Ca that gives us E. H. I still think you are trying to make an adventure out of a mere printing accident. Oh. No mere printing accident could so readily fall into one of the great traditional ciphers. Now, let's see. This message reads H-E-L, help, uh... Uh, Q, too small. A Q, I, uh, Quilter, help, Quilter. Um, L, L, too small and large. L, Elms, help, Quilter, Elms, pe there it is, yes. Penge, help, Quilter, Elms, Penge. Help, Quilter, Elms, Penge. What does that mean? Presumably that a man named Quilter, who lives at a house called the Elms, in the village of Penge, needs help. Ah, I see it now. A helpless victim held prisoner. He smuggles out this message as a, as a harmless personnel, uh, with strict instructions that it be printed on this art form. He knows that the amateurs of cryptography to whom it is addressed will decipher this call for help. Et voilà. Monsieur Via, you seem ready to grant that adventure can exist in London, after all. <laughs> the advantage, my dear Watson, of a more mercurial temperament than we Englishmen possess. Well, Le Villard, what about it? So we set off for Penge and rescue the ingenious Mr. Quilter from whatever dire fate awaits him in the elms? I'm all in patience. Mm. Splendid. Watson, I suppose you're too busy to join us. Uh, too busy? Well, I mean, your practice, I'm sure that you have patience. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, I have two further visits to make today. One to a peppery old miser who has gout, and the other to a wealthy society woman who has a cute attack of hypocrisy. Hypochondria, they call it. The two places with a hell of a I'm coming with you, Holmes, if you want me. Bravo, Watson. Then grab your hat and coat. The game's afoot.
gents, the helm's pin. Nice afternoon for a drive, wasn't it? Pray it'll cost you 15 bob, though. There's a sovereign for you. You can keep the change. Oh, me. Thank you, Governor. Top of the evening to you, gents. Oh, so, uh, this is the Elms, eh? Quite a bit of land for such a modest neighborhood. Uh, to call it the Elms seems remarkably inappropriate. I-, I cannot see an Elm tree in sight. So you see, Livia, the English have more imagination than you give them credit for. Are you just going to walk up to the front door and knock, Holmes? Why not? The direct approach is often the most satisfactory. Oh, you disappoint me. I had hoped that perhaps you would adopt one of the disguises in which you are so adept, I am told. Well, since it's unlikely that these people know me by sight, that's hardly necessary, is it? However, I trust that this little problem may reward you with some colorful highlights before we throw... Oh, it's Scott. Revolver shots. They came from the house. Ah, we are too late. Mr. Quilter has been murdered. No, I think not. You will observe that the next-door neighbor to the Elms was mowing his front lawn as we drove up. He is still engaged in the same occupation. Obviously, revolver shots attract little attention this vicinity. Mon Dieu, you mean that violence and sudden death are so common that they do not attract even the passing <laughs> interest? <laughs> no, we are. <laughs> even the British are not as phlegmatic as that. Then what is the answer to those shots, Holmes? Well, some member of this household is addicted to pistol practice. And the fact that a shooting target is nailed to the back of that fence over there would further support the theory. Well, that's rather ominous, in my opinion. Well, here we are at the front door. Let's keep our wits about us, anyway. Are you carrying a revolver, Dr. Watson? No, no stethoscope, I'm afraid. I was prepared for sickness when I left the house today, and not for crime. Mm, I, too, am unarmed. How about you, Monsieur Holmes? Only a magnifying glass, I'm afraid. Hardly a very lethal weapon. Yes? My friends and I were calling on Mr. Quilter. Oh? Who are you? My name is Sherlock Holmes, and these are my friends. Dr. Watson and Monsieur Le How do you do, madam? How do you do? expect I don't know. We uh, read his advertisement in the agony column of the Times today and came down here at once. Are you uh, a relation of his? I'm his niece. Oh. My name is Doris Favisham. Come in, won't you? Uh, Miss Favisham, I suppose it is. Yes, doctor. It's Miss Favisham. Uh, we uh, heard three revolver shots as we were walking up the driveway. They... Gave us quite a start. Yes, mademoiselle. We were afraid that we might have arrived at the time of tragedy. Yes, indeed. Tragedy? Oh, <laughs> my hobby is revolver shooting. I was doing some target practice in the back garden as you arrived. Revolver shooting, Miss Savage. Very interesting. I flatter myself that I'm something of a marksman myself. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps we can have a match. Won't you sit down? Your challenge intrigues me, Miss Savage, but uh, before I accept it, I should like to see Mr. Quilter. Well, Uncle George is paralyzed, you know. Oh, it's been to any time in a wheelchair. I'm not at all sure he'll see you. Well, at least you can ask him, can't you, Miss Favisham? It is his custom at this time of the day to take a little nap. Uh, perhaps tomorrow... Doris! Doris! Uh, he's still awake. Who's in yes, Uncle? Some men have come to see you, Uncle. Well, bring him in, bring him in. Follow me, gentlemen. Uncle, this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Dr. Watson and Monsieur... Uh, Monsieur... Le Monsieur Le Villard. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Sherlock Holmes, eh? It took you long enough to decipher my message and get here, didn't it? Your brother's a much faster worker, isn't he? Oh, what makes you say that, Mr. Quilter? Received this telegram from him at 11 o'clock this morning. Read it for yourself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you say, huh? Suggest you consult my brother Sherlock, and it's 
<laughs> Signed by Croc Holmes. Yes, Mr. Quilton. My brother is a much faster worker. Or shall we say that he suffers from the unfortunate habit of early rising? He undoubtedly read the agony column three hours before I did today. I don't know about that. But I've been expecting you all day. I imagine you know why I inserted that advertisement. Well, I had the impression that uh, you were under some form of restraint. That uh, you were in need of a rescue party, as it were. Rubbish. Hmm? My advertisement was a piece of subtle bait. The only person that could decipher the message would obviously be someone who knew the Baconian cipher. A very logical deduction, Mr. Fulton. You see, I'm convinced, as any sensible man should be, that the so-called Shakespearean plays were written by Sir Francis Bacon. Oh, I see. But I felt that it needed a clever man to prove the fact. Mm-hmm. I was sure that anyone who was able to decipher my message was the man I needed. And what did it take, Mr. Holmes, to do the job? I'm a rich man. Name your fee. You mean to say that you inveigled Mr. Holmes down here just to do some research? On the origin of Shakespeare's work? Oh, you needn't look so shocked, Dr. Watson. My uncle has offered to pay him a handsome fee. Well, what do you say, Mr. Sherlock Holmes? An interesting subject for research. I'll concede that Ignatius Donnelly and others have proved almost beyond doubt that William Shakespeare of Stratford on Avon did not write the plays, but I greatly doubt that Lord Bacon did. I may devote my leisure and later years to some investigation on the subject, but in the meanwhile, Mr. Grotter, I'm afraid I'm much too busy to undertake such an assignment. Oh, please yourself. Show the gentleman out, Doris. Goodbye, sir. Good day, sir. Too bad you had this long drive down here for nothing, gentlemen. Yes, I, I quite agree on it. It would seem to me that your uncle has a distinct talent for practical joking, mademoiselle. Uncle? Oh, uncle never made a joke in his life. Mr. Holmes, now that you're here, perhaps you'd like to indulge in a little shooting match. Thank you, Miss Faversham, but um, as I told your uncle, I'm a busy man. Good evening to you. Goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye. Goodbye. Holmes, old fellow, you're, you're losing your touch. You'd never met a blunder like this if I'd still been with you. <laughs> it is comforting for an aspiring detective like myself to know that the great Sherlock Holmes is fallible. <laughs> <laughs> then am I to assume that I must continue the case alone? What do you mean, continue the case? There isn't, there isn't one. So there's in no danger. He's in desperate danger. What? I'm only afraid I may be too late to save him. But we have just spoken to the man. Oh, no. Did either of you notice the traces of fresh loam on the boots of that supposedly paralyzed man? Gentlemen, I fear the agony column has led us to murder. Well, Doctor, why did you have to break off your story there? Well, I had to break it off somewhere, Mr. Bartell, and that seemed to be the most exciting spot. It certainly was. I was convinced that the great Sherlock Holmes had been fooled for once. What happened next? Well, I need this to remark we did not get into a cab and go back to London, but let me pick up the story at the same place that I broke it off. As Holmes said... Gentlemen, I fear the agony column has led us to murder. Murder? There was fresh earth on the soles of his boots, you see? Distinct traces. Proving that the man in the wheelchair was not paralyzed. And that man, whoever he is, was impersonating Quilter to put us off the track. And the real Quilter may have been killed, eh? I'm afraid so. Let's stop here for a moment, shall we, while we make our plans. This hedge will hide us from the house in case they're watching from the windows. Now, this isn't a hard picture to reconstruct. There undoubtedly is or was a paralyzed Baconian scholar named Coulter. He managed to smuggle out that ingenious plea for help, but Mycroft's unfortunate telegram gave the game away. Mm-hmm. I see it now. The people in there holding him prisoner 
forced him to reveal what he has done, eh? What they may have done to him, heaven alone knows. One of the criminals, guessing from the telegram that I might appear on the case, posed as the crippled Quilter. What's our next move, huh? Remember that singularly unattractive young lady killed with a revolver? We must search the grounds as unobtrusively as we can. Search the grounds? For what? Uh, I can answer that question, Monsieur Doctor. We search for signs of the freshly turned earth of a grave. didn't find any traces of the poor devil's corpse, thank heaven. No. A great disappointment. Oh, Jeremy, you're very bloodthirsty to the yard. Hello. Look at the old fellow trimming the hedge over there. Must be the gardener. Let's have a chat with him, shall we? May be able to give us some information. Good evening to you. Good evening to you, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. You work for Mr. Quilter? That I do, sir. That I do. Ah, very fine work, too. I've seldom seen a better kept garden. Why, thank you, sir. I do pride myself in my work. I wonder if you can help me. Be glad to if I can, sir. Uh, did you see a telegraph boy deliver a message here this morning? That I did, sir. The boy came here about ten o'clock this morning. I was clipping the front edge at the time. And uh, you've been working here ever since? Yes, sir. Brought my lunch with me today and ate it in the garden. Has anyone entered or left the house since that telegram was delivered? No, sir. No one except yourself. I see, I see. I suppose you occasionally run errands for Mr. Quilter? Not much these days, sir. The poor old gentleman keeps his chair in the house pretty much all the time, sir. I did run a message for him yesterday, though. Oh, you did? Where to? Well, sir, I was pruning the rose bushes under his study windows when the window opens and his hand comes out with a message. He told me to take it to the village office of the Times and to tell him to print it just the way it was. He looked kind of worried when he gave me the message, and he he whispered to me, just as if he was afraid in his own house. I'm much obliged to you. Here's five shillings for your trouble. Oh, thank you, sir. Much obliged to you, I'm sure. Good evening. Good evening to you, gentlemen. So that's how the message was smuggled out. Mm, and no one has come to the house or left it since that telegram was delivered. Therefore, Quilter or his body must still be inside that house. We are going to search the house? Yes, we are. But we're not armed, and they certainly are. They probably won't even let us in. Yes, they will. We have a, an infallible key to entry, a woman's vanity. Come on. <laughs> So you came back. I thought you wouldn't be able to resist my challenge to a pistol match, Mr. Holmes. Exactly, Miss Favisham. We had difficulty in finding a cab and decided to take a train back to London. It was an hour's wait, so I... Well, I thought I'd accept your challenge. Good. Come in. We'll go into the back garden. Thank you. Don't talk loudly. I think Uncle's asleep in the next room. Don't bring anybody in here, Doris. I want to see. All right, Uncle. This way, gentlemen. If your uncle wants to sleep, see if it's a funny sort of al- alibi. <laughs> oh, well, he's used to that, Doctor. Here we are. This is the 50-yard range, Mr. Holmes. Three shots. Best aggregate score wins. I'm still want to bet. Uh, you name the stake. <coughs> name the stakes, Miss Favisham. The sovereign? Certainly. You uh, take the first three shots? Very well. I'll just check that it's loaded. Yes, six bullets. All right, here I go. Bravo, Miss Faversham. Splendid. Bullseye and two winners. I can do better. Your turn, Mr. Holmes. Doris, 
Who are these men? Friends of mine. I'll introduce you in a minute, Jeffrey. We're in the middle of a match at the moment. Your turn, Mr. Holmes. The Volvo, please. Here you are. Thank you. You, uh, you're sure you know how to handle a revolver? Oh, quite sure, thanks. And why are you pointing it at me? Because I want you to raise your hands above your head. You too, whatever your name is. Doris, who are these men? Put up your hands. I shan't hesitate to shoot, I assure you. Come on. That's it. What in heaven's name do you think you're up to? Finding out what became of the real Mr. Quilter. Search the man, Watson. Right, your Holmes. Be off. Uh, go to the house, will you, and search it. Uh, yes, but of course. Hello, this man had a revolver on his hip. Keep him covered with it. He'll stand still, you. Now, sir, who are you? From your resemblance to the man in the wheelchair that we saw earlier, I should say that you're a member of the same family. We're both relatives of Mr. Quilter. That's right. My name's Davis. I'm from the Australian branch of the family. Relatives. Yes, and doubtless you stood to inherit his estate in the event of Quilter's death. You moved in on this defenseless old man, terrorized him, lived off him, and finally found it necessary to destroy him. You're talking absolute rubbish. You're telling the truth and you know it. I can tell by your expressions. No back into the house, both of you. Come on. And keep your hands raised. All right, that's it. Come on. Lead the way into the study. The man posing as Mr. Coulter is still there. We heard him call out as we came in. Yes, we might as well confront the three of them together. Yes, he's still seated in the chair. He seems to be asleep. Here. Did you find anything? Another trace of the missing men, Monsieur Holmes. Davis. What did you do with Mr. Quilter? I didn't do anything with him. Of course not. He's sitting there in that chair. Well, it's not a good line to us. We know that that man's an imposter. This is a fantastic situation. Nobody has left this house since the telegram arrived, and nobody has come to it, yet Mr. Quilter has vanished. Lord, how can he sleep through all this talk? You'd think he'd been drugged. The figure! We are idiots! You are unquestionably the most promising detective in France, and some people have been kind enough to grant me a similar status in England, and yet my old friend Watson has just solved the case. Well, nothing. I'm too happy to... What? Solved it? How? Listen to the breathing of that man in the chair. What? He's been drugged. There sits the real Mr. Quilter, the persecuted victim who sent a cipher message for help. The man we spoke to earlier. Was you, Mr. Davies, impersonating Quilter. After you'd received us, you took off your disguise, adopted an Australian accent, and then hid your drug victim by placing him in his own wheelchair, knowing that would be the last place we'd look for him. Mm, and they would have kept him here until we had gone and then murdered him. What a devilish plot. Well, what have you got to say to yourselves? It was Jeffrey's idea, not mine. I didn't have anything to do with it. That's a dirty lie. You were in this as much as I am. Oh, this is splendid. This is splendid. Please continue the argument. It'll... Make interesting evidence in court. You can't take us into court. Of course you can't. What's the charge? Quilter's still alive, isn't he? When Mr. Quilter revives under Dr. Watson's ministrations, you will be charged, I have no doubt, with attempted murder, abduction, sequestration, duress, and probably several other counts. Monsieur Villard, if you will find us a cab, we'll take these miscreants to Scotland Yard. Our work is done. <laughs> Doctor, that was a fine story. Every... What are you fidgeting for? Fidgeting? We were, I'm expecting a guest. I thought I heard him just now. now the, the, the front door. A guest? <laughs> now you're being as mysterious as Mr. Holmes. Oh, not quite. You see, I... Ah, come in. Dr. Watson, how are you, you old rascal? <laughs> Gregory, my boy. It's great to see you again. Mr. Bartell, 
Meet my friend, Mr. Gregory Hood. Not the Gregory Hood. Mr. Bartell, I like the way you say that. <laughs> yes, Mr. Bartell, this is the Gregory Hood. Mr. Bartell, if you listen to Dr. Watson, he'll lead you to believe I'm much more important than I am. I'm quite a simple person, really. I'm kind to dogs, just love little children, and always help old ladies cross the street. I also know how to make a fire by rubbing two sticks together. <laughs> yes, and unlike my old friend Holmes, you pretend to know very little about criminals and crime... And yet you're one of America's outstanding criminologists. So I've heard. A hobby, Mr. Bartell, a hobby. My real business is importing. Headquarters, San Francisco. Uh, need any old masters? Perhaps I can sell you a nice piece of jade, or uh, would you rather have a bit of old Balinese sculpture? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This is all a little too fast for me. Yes, you learn that Gregory is a little too fast for everybody. Uh, but, Mr. Bartell, I'm sure you'll get to know Mr. Hood a good deal better. You see, as I've told you, I've always wanted to take a trip back to England... And now I have a chance to do so. But, Doctor, uh, won't I see you again? What about our story? Oh, I shall be back in the fall. But meanwhile, I've asked Mr. Gregory Hood to get together with you at this time every week and tell you some of his experiences. Which, of course, makes me feel very important. Mr. Hood, as you know, has been involved in many famous cases dealing in crime. His importing business and his hobby criminology are a strange combination. I learned that he keeps a diary of these cases, and it's a fascinating book. The Casebook of Gregory Hood. The Casebook of Gregory Hood. Sounds intriguing. Intriguing? Huh. It certainly is. Thank you. Well, then I can tell all our friends, be sure to listen next week at the same time and every Monday night through the summer to The Casebook of Gregory Hood. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Sign of Four. Music is by Dean Foster. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California... Invite you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studio. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petrie family. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Time now for The Great Gildersleeve, starring Harold Perry. He was an American actor, comedian, and singer in radio, films, television, and animation, remembered best as Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, a supporting character on radio's Fibber McGee and Molly that moved to his own radio hit, The Great Gildersleeve, the first known spin-off hit in American broadcasting history. I love his delivery, but his best-remembered vocalism would be what radio historians have called his dirty laugh a descending giggle that could start from sarcasm and finish in an embarrassment or substitute for being at a schoolboy-like loss for words. Here's tonight's episode entitled Ten Best Dressed, which first aired in 1942. Kraft presents The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> Cheese Company, who also bring you Bing Crosby every Thursday night, present each week at this time, Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by Leonard L. Levinson. 
spring has come to a certain home in Summerfield. Spring with its bright colors and its new flowers. And here on his hands and knees in the hallway, tacking down a new bright-colored flowered carpet, is our friend, the great Gildersleeve. The moon shines bright, it's light all night. Deep in the heart of Texas, I'm stuck Leroy because my boy... I'm short of carpet taxes. (laughs) The coyote's wine takes some of mine. Deep in the heart of Texas. Well, thank you, son. I'm almost done. (laughs) (laughs) Dion, what did you do? If I hit the wrong nail. (laughs) Here, let me finish it for you. All right. Uh, thanks, Leroy. You certainly knock with the knack. <laughs> oh, I'm tired. Let's sit down on the steps for a while, huh? Oh! What's wrong, Unc? I just discovered I wasn't out of taxes, after all. Hey, what's going on out here? Are you getting the carpet down, Uncle Mort, or is it getting you down? Yeah, hello, Marjorie. I, I had misplaced some tax, and I had just found them the hard way. <laughs> You better take them out of your pocket before you ruin your trousers. Oh, this is really just an old pair, but I'll unload the tacks anyhow. Yeah, there. Oh, well, what do you know? What is it, Uncle? Why, here's my lucky half dollar. So that's where it was. No wonder I haven't been getting the Blake's breaks lately. <laughs> yeah, but you watch. Things are going to be better now that I found it again. Really, Uncle, you believe in the most childish superstitions. <laughs> Oh, I'm different. Yeah. Uh, Excuse me, Mrs. Gilsey, but here's a telegram that just came for you. Oh, thank you, Bertie. Uh, telegrams fascinate me. Uh, well, listen to this. Uh, dear Mr. Gildersleeve, congratulations. The Gentlemen's Fashion Guild of New York has selected you as one of the ten best-dressed men in Summerfield. Well, signed J.C.B. Halchester, President. Why, Uncle, that coined up bring you luck. One of the ten best-dressed men. Bye, George. I can hardly believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Neither can I, Mr. Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why not? Well, just look at yourself in them old work clothes. Huh? It's a good thing there ain't no television to telegraph. They'll say to elect you the ten worst-dressed men in town. <laughs> Remind Uncle Mort of his appointment downtown. Do you know where he is? Yes, me standing in front of the mirror in his room, no doubt, trying to decide which one of his neckties harmonizes best with the rest of his haberdashery. Oh, do you think so? <laughs> Undubitably. <laughs> He's been that way ever since he got that telegram. Oh, you mean the one from those fashion experts? That's right. And making him one of the best press men in town is making me one of the worst work women in town. I'm wearing myself down to a shadow. Well, I knew it doesn't show. <laughs> In fact... Ah, good morning, Marjorie. Hello, Bertie. Say, how do I look? Does my cravat blend with the rest of my ensemble? Yes, sir. But I was sure you was going to ask us if your tie harmonized with the remainder of your clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle, yeah. you look as if you just stepped out of a bandbox. Now, don't kid me, Marjorie. Whoever saw a bandbox big enough for me to step out of? <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going, Uncle? Well, Mr. Halchester's in town. He's invited me to meet him at the Ritz Summerfield. Oh, you mean the men's clothes designer? Yeah, I hope I look my best. Oh, you do. Uh, oh, that must be Judge Hooker. Send him right in, Bertie. We're saving rubber by riding downtown in his car. <laughs> Oh, 
Well, good morning, Judge. Hey, look at those duds. You'd look like a tailor's dummy, Gildersleeve. You didn't talk so much. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry if my sartorial splendor disturbs you, Judge. But as one of the ten best-dressed men in Summerfield... Who, you? Who says so? The Gentleman's Fashion Guild of New York? Never heard of them. If in the looks of your clothes, you've never even heard of gentlemen's fashions. <laughs> as Mr. Halchester said to me this morning... Who's Mr. Halchester? Mr. Halchester is a famous style authority. He's the man who picked me and the other nine snappiest dressers. How'd he do it? Over the telephone? Yeah. Over the telephone. He's stopping at the Ritz Summerfield. I'm going down to meet him. Say, I'd like to meet him, too. You mind if I come along with you? Not at all. That suit of yours should give Mr. Halchester a good hearty laugh. <laughs> What's wrong with his suit? Oh, nothing that a rock, a rope, and a river couldn't cure. Mr. Gildersleeve, come in, come in. Oh, this is a pleasure indeed, Mr. Halchester. Uh, this is a friend of mine, Judge Horace Hooker, a uh, close friend. Uh, Judge, I want you to know Mr. Halchester. Oh, everybody knows Mr. Halchester. Glad to meet you, sir. Uh, I'd like both of you to meet Mr. Leslie, one of New York's leading tailors. How do you do? It's a pleasure. Me too. Uh, Mr. Leslie makes most of the clothing I design. Oh. Uh, Mr. Gildersleeve here was on our ten best list for Summerfield. Ah, uh, Yes. Excellent choice. And I think he has a very good chance of making our first team. Uh, you mean... Yes, the ten best-dressed men in America. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but then, why not? It, how do you make your selection? Oh, on a number of counts. Huh? Taste, style, figure, carriage. Gildy could win on the last two. He's got a figure like a carriage, all right. <laughs> Ignore him, Mr. Halchester. He's just jealous. He's so skinny, his tailor has to put pads in his trousers so his knees will bag. <laughs> yeah, go on, sir. Well, another big point is extent of wardrobe. Oh. Gildy should win that one, too. His wardrobe extends farther out than... No, see here, hooker. Are nice clothes your hobby, sir? Oh, yes, uh, Mr. Leslie. It always has been. You see, I was elected the best-dressed fellow in my class at college. After I introduced peg-top pants and yellow-button shoes. Uh, I'd like to see uh, some of your ensembles, Mr. Gildersleeve. I suppose, of course, you have a country squire suit in Orkney Twist. In the... What? Orkney Twist. Oh. You know, that new hand-woven suiting? Very popular in New York this season. Yes. Uh, have you any of it with you, Leslie? Only that boat I was taking out to Hollywood. I I'll bring it in. He's a master with a needle, that Leslie. Uh -huh. Oh, they're mad about him in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, uh, gentlemen, probably the last boat of Orkney Twist left in America. Pretty loud material, isn't it? That just shows your lack of taste, Judge Hooker. That orange diagonal stripe is just what the chocolate background needs to set off the little blue dots. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right, Mr. Gildersleeve. It's the rage. Yeah. Mr. Leslie, I just had an idea. How would it be if you made me a suit out of that uh, Corkney Twist, huh? Don't be foolish, Gildersleeve. How can they get a suit for you out of that bolt? Well, there can't be more than 12 or 13 yards there. Yep. Hooker, I only require five yards of cloth. But if you keep putting in, you're just going to need six feet of dirt, and that's all. <laughs> well, gentlemen, what do you say? I think it might be arranged. Oh, splendid. Gildy, are you sure you can afford it? Afford? Why, the question of payment doesn't enter into this, Judge Hooper. Hooker! 
Thank you. Uh, if Mr. Gildersleeve is taken with this material and wishes a suit whipped up, he shall have it at no expense. What? Oh, that's wonderful. If no, I couldn't let you do a thing like that. But, my dear man, we'd be delighted. Oh, no. At least let me pay the cost of the material. You needn't do anything of the sort. But I insist. Oh, well, all right, if it'll make you any happier. I doubt it. If... How much is the material? Oh, why, speak of it. A mere nothing. Huh? Uh, what is it, Leslie? Oh, it didn't cost us much, uh... Thirty-five, I think. Thirty-five dollars? Why, that's very reasonable. Yes. You require five yards, don't you? Yeah. Five yards at thirty-five a yard. That makes, a uh, hundred and seventy-five dollars, doesn't it? If it does. If nine goes into seven. Oh, my goodness, it does. <laughs> Mr. Halchester speaking. Hello. This is the man who was just up there with Mr. Gildersleeve. Oh, hello, Judge Rucker. Hooker. Hooker, Mr. Halchester. I wonder if you could make me a suit just like Gildersleeve. You want the same suit? Yeah, but not the same size. Well, uh, I thought you didn't like that material. I didn't at first, but the colors sort of grow on you. Well, I'm not sure we have enough of that Orkney twist. But I don't take much. Only about two and a half yards. Say so you'll do it, Mr. Halchester? I'm not going to take a back seat to Gildersleeve, that old Brummel with a big bumper. <laughs> well, um, maybe. You will? Oh, fine. When do you want to take my measurements? Uh, how about tomorrow morning? I'll be there. Meantime, I'll send a check right over to seal the bargain. Let me see, two and a half yards, thirty-five $87.50, isn't it? Yes, uh, eighty-seven fifty for the cloth and the same for the tailoring. Uh, comes to exactly $175. What? <laughs> Oh, the tailoring. Oh, I hadn't figured on that. You didn't charge Gildersleeve anything for tailoring. Oh, that's true. But Mr. Gildersleeve is a prominent man with a style following. Poppycock! Who'd ever be dumb enough to follow that big buffalo styles? Well, for one, um, you. Oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> well, I'll send the check over this afternoon. And Mr. Alchester. Yeah? Have you selected anyone as the best-dressed judge in town yet? No. Well, I hope that my buying this suit won't influence your decision. <laughs> <laughs> Why, that old... Hey, Leslie. Yeah, what is it, Chesty? Another sucker just hooked himself. Yeah, who? That judge was here with a fat chump. That makes 11 best-dressed boobs we catch in this town. Chesty, I gotta hand it to you. This is the sweetest switch on the suit racket I ever heard of. It sure is. Now, uh, what size would you say we should get for the little squirt that just formed? Uh, he'd take about a 32 in a boy's suit. <laughs> okay, then. Wire Joe to airmailers, one thirty-two boys and one big one. Say, um, uh, 48 stub. Okay. Uh, and tell him to leave the seams open. Uh, sure. Say, what's the real name of this horse blanket material? You mean Orkney Twist? Yeah. At the factory, it's known as Backstretch Burlap. <laughs> Now let's return to the great Gildersleeve, who is preparing to return to the Ritz Summerfield for his first bidding. Uh, hello, Polkney. No, if you want my opinion as a style expert, you should wear a white mess jacket. Yeah, with a black bow tie. That's right. Oh, no trouble at all. Call me anytime you need sartorial guidance. Goodbye, Polkney. 
Isn't it just a little too early to be wearing a white mess jacket, Uncle? No, not for Pulteney, my dear. He just got a job as a soda jerker. <laughs> well, I got the amble along now. By the way, what's the time? Haven't you got your watch? Uh, no, if I carried in my vest pocket, the bulge might ruin my silhouette. <laughs> Isn't that silly? It certainly is. <laughs> I read it in a fashion magazine. I wonder if Bertie has pressed my top coat yet. Oh, Bertie! Yes, it's Mr. Gillespie. And I put a nice flower in the buttonhole, too. Oh, thanks. A geranium. Well, that's better than no flower at all, or is it? My, Mr. Gillsleeve, it sure is a show balloting for you. Huh? But when I see you strutting down the street, I nudge it myself and I says, Bertie Lee Coggins, you may work hard, but the result is worth the effort. Oh, thank you, Bertie. And just to show my appreciation, here, you can have back the geranium. For me? Well, thank you. Hi, Oaks. Say, did you see the big write-up about you on the paper? Uh, you mean all about Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, the well-known businessman being selected by a famous New York fashion designer as one of the best-dressed men not only in Summerfield, but possibly in the entire country? Yeah, that was it. No, I didn't see it. <laughs> How do you know all about it, Uncle? Well, one of the reporters on the paper happened to be talking to me on the telephone, and I guess my clothes just sort of crept into the conversation. <laughs> was that why you was trying to call the newspaper all morning? If no, Bertie, I was... It was has anybody got the time? Yes, ten past one. Oh, I'll have to hurry right down and try on that new suit Mr. Halchester designed for me. Uh, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye. Everybody. I know it's going to look nice on you, Uncle. Yes, and lots of luck, Miss Gill, please. Yeah, I hope you have a perfect fit, Uncle. Oh, yes. What? Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> Mr. Gildersleeve. Well, send him right up. Okay, let's trot out that 48 stub. I got it. Looks too big. Probably fit him like the skin on a raisin. <laughs> then you better do a good alteration, Jab. Now watch your step. And remember, you ain't back in a tailor shop at Leavenworth, or else you will be. Oh, uh, come in, Mr. Gildersleeve. Oh, hello, Mr. Halchester. Hello, Mr. Leslie. I hope I haven't put you two gentlemen to a lot of trouble. Oh, no. Mr. Leslie's a very fast worker. Oh. Why, he's practically made that suit fly. Oh, how nice. Could I try it on now, please? Of course. Just slip out of your coat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now slide into this one. <laughs> Thanks. I can hardly wait. Yeah. Now button it. All right. <gasps> what do you think, Mr. Leslie? It fits him just like the skin on a grape. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you're going to get a lot of comments on that coat. Uh, don't you think it's a little too roomy? Well, for some people, maybe, uh, but not for you. Oh. Uh, you're the type that can stand a little room. Oh, can I? Well, uh, if, what do you think of the sleeves? Are they wearing sleeves over the knuckles this year? <laughs> oh. Well, uh, not quite. Oh. Uh, they should be taken in. Oh, and what about the lapels? Uh, if I move my head, the points tickle my ears. <laughs> well, uh, they should be taken in, too. Oh, and uh, the way it droops, I mean drapes in front, <laughs> I can't tell whether it's a loose sack suit or tight double-breaster. Well, in that case, you should be taken in. Uh, <laughs> I hope I'm not giving you too much trouble, Mr. Leslie. Oh, no, not at all. When I sized you up, I must have been using a rubber tape measure. Oh, very good. Uh, now, if you're ready to try on the trousers, Mr. Gildersleeve, here they are. Uh, just step into the next room. The trousers. All right, thank you. I'll be right back, gentlemen. Oh, brother. Gee, that's the worst-looking botch yet. 
I don't know how I'm going to fix that coat up. Now, don't worry. All we got to do is send to the factory for a 44 long. Yeah. And when it comes in, use the back of this one and the front of a new one. What do you mean? <laughs> well, this guy's got a tricky shape. He's a 48 stub in the back and a 44 long in the front. <laughs> okay. But aren't we taking a little loss that way? So what? These suits only cost us $9.75 wholesale. I know, but why should we... Here he comes. Whatever you do, don't let him get a look at himself in a mirror. He'll jump out the window. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid these trousers are a trifle too tight. Holy smoke, you gave him Judge Booker's pants. Uh, oh, come in. Come in. Yeah. I know, Mr. Gildersleeve. Uh, in fact, I'm a bit disappointed with the way the whole suit has come out. Oh. So I'm going to have Mr. Leslie recut the entire garment. Oh, say, I don't want you to go to all that trouble for nothing. Well, let's not say for nothing. Say for a slight alteration fee of uh, 975 Oh, well, that's awfully nice of you. Oh, don't mention it. I always welcome the opportunity to make a little change whenever I can. Afternoon. Is Mr. Gildersleeve home? Yes, and who is it to see him? I am. Excuse me, but who's you? Mrs. Salisbury Twitchell. Oh, the Mrs. Twitchell. Well, come right in and rest your umbrella. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Mr. Gildersleeve, I have the honor to announce the arrival of Mrs. Strawberry Twitchell. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wonder what that old... Ah, uh, Mrs. Twitchell. <laughs> I was just saying, I wonder what that old friend wanted. <laughs> Will you have a chair, Mrs. Twitchell? That isn't what I wanted, Mr. Gildersleeve. Huh? I'll explain my visit simply so you can grasp it without too much of a struggle. Oh, thanks. Uh, Mr. Hopalong Cassidy, the movie star, arrives in Summerfield in two hours to aid our big defense bond drive. He does? Why, he's my favorite movie star. I'd like to meet him. You will have that opportunity. One of the members of my welcoming committee dropped some milk on his foot and cannot attend. If, uh, why should dropping a little milk on his foot keep him away? If I must go into detail, he's got a broken toe. The milk was condensed in cans and in a case. <laughs> Uh, therefore, Mr. Gildersleeve, in order that we are not faced with the situation of a welcoming committee consisting of 13 members... Uh, will you join us? Yes. <laughs> yes, gladly. Incidentally, whatever made you think of little me? Well, it was that story in the paper regarding your selection as one of the best-dressed men in town. Yeah. <laughs> Newspapers exaggerate so, don't they? Oh, well, if you mean this old smoking jacket, well, don't worry. You'll really be bowled over when you see my appearance at the station. Mr. Cassidy's train arrives at 5.52. Now, please try to be there on time. And if any photographs are taken, kindly refrain from waving your handkerchief at the cameraman. Goodbye. Uh, well, uh, Dear what? Uh, I couldn't help listening. Hop along, Cassidy. That's Bill Boyd. Yes. Can I come along and see him, huh? Can I? Why not? Uh, oh, I know why not. I have to stop at the hotel first and change into my new Orkney Twist ensemble. But you aren't supposed to pick it up until tomorrow morning. Well, if they promise it for then, it's essential it'll be all ready now. And I needed to impress Hopalong, Twitchell, and Mrs. Cat. I mean, vice versa. <laughs> well, why can't I just come along with you, huh? Oh, I guess you can at that. If you wait downstairs in the lobby. Come on, come on, come on.
coat. It's all right, Mr. Halchester. But don't you think the style is a little too juvenile for me? Oh, not at all, Judge Schnooker. Hooker. <laughs> Hooker, sir. Pardon me. No, I purposely designed that suit along boyish lines to bring out the, uh, the Mickey Rooney in you. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Now, I hadn't pictured myself that way lately. <laughs> oh, you're the Mickey type, all right. <laughs> With this suit, I sort of feel like I should get a free baseball bat. <laughs> For the price I paid, you should throw in a pitcher from the Dodgers. <laughs> Uh, excuse me. Yes? Who's on his way up? Mr. Gildersleeve. Huh? Thanks. Did I hear you say Gildersleeve is on his way up here? You heard the man. Oh, he mustn't find me here. I'm trying to surprise him. Can't I hide someplace until he leaves? Uh, why, yes, sir. Right in the next room. Oh, thank you. Let me know. Let me know when he's gone. Hey, what's Fatso doing coming around now? He isn't due till tomorrow. By then, we should be on our way to Florida. Oh, he don't worry me. There's a guy from the Better Business Bureau waiting in the lobby. Uh-oh. Let's get out of here. Now, take it easy. We got our bags all packed. All we got to do is take an earlier train. Where's that timetable? Here, I, I got it marked. The streamline will leave in 30 minutes. Can we make it? Yeah. Only what are we going to do with that judgy in there? Or pudgy out there. <laughs> now, hide the judge's trousers in your suitcase. We'll work the old pants trick on both of them. Uh, enter, Mr. Gildersleeve. You'll excuse me for coming so early, but I wonder if I could get my suit now. Oh, of course, Mr. Gildersleeve. Only uh, first, there's one little detail. Oh, yes. Uh, we'd like to compare the measurements of the trousers you're wearing uh, with the new ones. Of course, uh, Would you mind taking them off? Oh, not at all, not at all. <laughs> you don't know how nice it is if you do this for me. <laughs> yeah, here you are. Yeah. Thank you. Now, if you'll kindly wait in the next room. Oh, anything to oblige. <laughs> uh, just make yourself comfortable in there. Yeah, don't worry. I will. <laughs> Deep in the... <laughs> Judge Hooker! <laughs> what are you doing hiding in the corner and without your pants? Same thing as you are. Being fitted for one of those Orkney twisters. Oh, getting a suit behind my back, eh? That's pretty low, Judge. And by George, I'm going to complain. Uh, Mr. Halchester, uh, Mr. Leslie, uh, that's peculiar. They're not here. Not only that, their bags and clothing aren't here either. What? Hey, I don't see my pants anywhere. My pants are gone, too. Yeah, this is going to be one of my bad days. Now, don't get in a panic, Gildy. Maybe they just stepped out into the hall. Come on, let's look. Yeah, let's look in the hall. Well, you go first, Gildy. Uh, okay, you think it's going to be all right? <laughs> no, it isn't all right. Judge, there's something awfully funny looking around here, and I don't mean us. How about phoning downstairs? No, I can't. The telephone wires have been cut. Look. No question about it, then. They were crooks, all right. Yes. Fine people you introduced me to, Gildersleeve. Yes, and a fine judge you are, Hooker. You can't even recognize a crook when he steals your own pants. <laughs> oh, my goodness. My pocketbook was in my trousers. It was? <laughs> well, I never get mine. Look, I always keep it in my coat. You old jumping jeeps, they did get my lucky half dollar. What's that? Hear that? Huh? Maybe it's all just a joke. Why, of course. Yeah, that's it. Come on in, boys. Yes, come on in. If Leroy, what are you doing here? Gee, I'm glad to see you, Unc. I was waiting in the lobby, and once the Halchester came down and checked out, I didn't know what to think. You checked out? Where'd he go? 
When he passed me, he was telling another man they'd have to go like 60 if they wanted to catch the Florida train. Say, where are your pants? On their way to Florida. <laughs> hey, Judge, we've got to stop them before they pull out of town. How? We can't dash down the station in our shorts? Uh, couldn't we pretend we're running in a marathon race? <laughs> Not me, brother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got an idea, Unc. Just take the blankets off this bed, wrap one around each of you, and go to the station that way. Take the blankets. Uh, you're a bright boy, Leroy. But we'd never get past the lobby. Well, how about sneaking down the fire escape? There's a taxi stand right below. A taxi? That's it. Come on, Hooker. Grab a blanket. But we can't get away with this. Sure we can. When we get to the railroad station, I'll pass you off as a couple of Indians looking for a Pullman reservation. <laughs> <laughs> We'll never see our pants again. Yes, nor my lucky half dollar either. Well, what was lucky about it? Yes. Say, Unc, you better be careful. Your blanket's dragging. It is? Oh, <laughs> Yes, Gildy, you look like one of the ten best-dressed beds in town. Yes. <laughs> is that so? Why? Oh, hello, Mrs. Twitchell. <laughs> Fancy meeting you here. Don't speak to me, Mr. Gildersleeve. Just because we are here to welcome a cowboy star doesn't mean that you should come dressed as sitting bull. <laughs> I never did like come her. Come on, come on. Let's get out of here before it's too late. Uh-oh. Oh, it, it is too late. Uh, hello, officer. What are you guys doing running around here in blankets? Come on, get into the station master's office here before you attract a crowd. But, officer, we were just chasing a couple of crooks who stole our pants. Oh, there they are. Well, Mr. Halchester and Mr. Leslie... So they got you too, huh? Hello, Patso. Hiya, Judge Crooker. You poker! Fine work, officer. I don't know what you're talking about. One of these birds tried to pass a counterfeit coin at the ticket window. Oh, but, officer, it wasn't mine. It belongs to this guy. Uh, who, me? Is this yours, buddy? A counterfeit? Oh, my goodness, it's my lucky half dollar. <laughs> Sorry, but our time's up. Good night, folks. <laughs> Original music heard on this program was composed and conducted by William Randolph. This is Jim Bannon speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company and inviting you to be with us again next week at the same time for the further adventures of the Great Gildersleeve. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Dark Fantasy, followed by Our Miss Brooks. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for A Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.